Chapter Thirteen of Lancashire by Francis Archibald Bruton. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Pendle. I love Pendle Hill, cries Nicholas in the second book of the Lancashire Witches, as he glances at the monster lying like a leviathan basking in the sunshine. From whatever side I view it, whether from Wally, where I see it from end to end, from its lowest point to its highest, from Paddyham, where it frowns upon me, from Clitheroe, where it smiles, or from Downham, where it rises in full majesty before me, from all points and under all aspects, whether robed in mist or radiant with sunshine, I delight in it. There's no hill in England like Pendle Hill. There is no hill like Pendle, was echoed by many Lancashire men as they lay in the trenches, looking out across the flat featureless fields of Flanders during the Great War, and it is said even now that when they returned on furlough, it was Pendle that they looked for, and thought of as they sped homewards. All of which goes to prove the statement, quoted in an earlier chapter, that more than any other physical feature in the county, Pendle Hill typifies Lancashire to Lancashire men. Of the two syllables of the name, each is derived, as all authorities agree, from a word meaning hill, the D merely acting as a connecting link, so that the expression Pendle Hill is doubly redundant. But this seems only to emphasise the fact that it is the hill, and as our opening quotation implies, it must be approached as well as viewed from many points, if its full power and beauty are to be appreciated. Pendle occurs in Doomsday in the name of Pendleton, which is there spelt Peniltune, the Penil being, as we said, Penhull, the Hill Hill. The suggestion is that the Britons first named it Pen, the Hill. The Saxons, not knowing the meaning of Pen, added their Hull, and thus we obtain Pendle. We, not appreciating the significance of either syllable, have added Hill. Pendle is as Hamerton said of the hills of the whole district, a sublime expression of gigantic power in repose, a monster couchant, or, shall we say, a living creature stretched in sleep. These expressions are specially applicable to the view of it from a distance, from Kemple End, for example, and those who are privileged to look at it often see something almost majestic in its perfect curves. Indeed, it is only when you have grown to love it that it proves to the fullest extent how worthy it is of your love. It seems to me that of the many people to whom I have spoken about Pendle, everyone has recommended some new point from which to attack it. But it would appear to be reasonable, and indeed it is in many respects best, to ascend Pendle first from its own territory, for Pendle is, in reality, the northern limit of one of the ancient forests or chases of Lancashire. The forest does not include the summit of the hill, which is now in the township of Warston, while the northeastern slope lies in the township of Downham. It would be tedious to enumerate here the forest chase and deer parks of the whole county, and to trace their history under successive kings. About fifty deer parks could be named. We may mention as examples those at Latham and Knowsley, at Blakely for the Lord of Manchester, at Dale Park for the Abbot of Furness, and so on. These would be enclosed with a pale. Sir Galahad, we remember, rode by bridge and ford, by park and pale. Leland speaks of Earl Derby's park at Mersco as partly enclosed with hedge, partly all on the moor side with pale. 
there were also royal forests as for example at bleasdale at quernmore near lancaster and at toxteth leland mentions the king's park at toxteth there is little sign of deer at toxteth now in addition to these there were parks in the hands of private individuals and these are distinguished from the royal forests by being called chases the lord of manchester for instance had his chase at horwich the abbot of furness held the sporting rights over the whole of his domain and there were the forest of bowland north of the ribble and the forest of tottington near bury now in the honour or estate of clitheroe which was held by the lacy family there were three such chases or private forests and to this day they are called respectively the forest of rossendale the forest of trawden and the forest of pendle let us not forget that all these lands were granted by charles the second to general monk in acknowledgment of the assistance he gave him at the time of the restoration the gift included also all the land in furness for monk who became duke of albemarle they descended to the duke of buccleu who still holds them it is worth noting also how the term lawnd or park still lingers in north lancashire as well as the name booth the booths were the dwellings of the herdsmen they formed the nuclei of the coming villages thus in pendle forest we have barrowford booth old lawnd booth and so on in these forests also the lords had their vaccaries or cattle farms but this name has disappeared from the maps very picturesque are the details in the old surveys as to the duties of the supervisors of these forest lands as regarded game and the birds used for falconry and the duties also of the inhabitants of the afforested districts towards the fauna of the forests and the lords foresters very hardly did a number of the forest laws bear upon these people and at the time of the signing of magna charta the relaxation of the forest laws meant far more to some of king john's subjects than the two or three constitutional clauses by which we set so much store as the keystone of english liberties as an interesting illustration there is still preserved at browsholme hall in the southern part of the forest of bowland the metal stirrup or loop through which according to these laws it must be possible to pass a dog's foot before it could be allowed to enter the forest if the foot would not pass the gauge it must have the toes pared off till it could do so or the dog was excluded altogether there is a curious case recorded in one of the courts of the lord of manchester as early as twelve fifty four his bailiff happened to learn at the manchester market that dogs had been heard in the park at horwich hurrying back there he found a harrier worrying the wild animals and as the old record expresses it he did to that dog what seemed to him good the forest of rossendale as is well known occupies the high ground between accrington and todmorden the old boundaries of the forest are still recognised as the limits of a parliamentary constituency which has been the scene of many a stirring political fight it is interesting to note that the vaccaries of the forest of rossendale were at bakeup and rottenstall which are not now exactly suitable as sites for dairy farms in earlier times however less value was set than is the case at present on the fact that coal crops out almost to the surface in this district the present boundaries of the township of trawden again are identical with the limits of the ancient forest of that name held by the lord of clitheroe trawden forest lies between colne and a long line of bolsworth hill 
where the county boundary bulges out to the east before leaving the Pennines. Bolesworth, which figures so many times in Halliwell Sutcliffe's novels, rises to a height of 1,700 feet, i.e. very little short of the height of Pendle. The county boundary runs along its summit by Jackson's Ridge, and the forest of Trawden, which lies at its foot, reaches out to very nearly the most easterly point of Lancashire. To the north-east it marches with Keithley Moor, and the road that runs between them not only joins Colne with Haworth, the home of the Brontes, but passes close beside Wycoller, the reputed Ferndean Manor of Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. Wycoller Dean and Hall are also described by Halliwell Sutcliffe in Mistress Barbara Cunliffe. Pendle Forest lay to the south-east of the hill that gave it its name, and the old name of the forest, Penhull, confirms what we have said above about its derivation. The forest covers an area of about twenty square miles. If we start from Nelson to ascend the hill, we may follow the beautiful Pendle water right to its source. The views of Pendle from this side are never so fine as from the west. The wild stream that we are following is rightly called Pendle water, for it rises almost on the summit of the hill, and has carved as its channel the lovely Ogden Clough, a deep cleft that begins by running south, and then sweeps round and opens to the north-east. The stream and its side tributaries seem to bear many names. Ogden Water, Barley Water, Rough Lee Water, Barrowford Water, and Black O Water are among the number. Later Pendle Water receives Colne Water, and, sometimes named the Calder itself, it joins the Calder at Royal Hall. Further down the Calder receives the Sabden, which flows between Pendle and the Reed Hall Ridge. The original stream has to sweep still further to the north, after leaving Ogden Clough to clear the ridge just mentioned. Just before reaching Roughly, we pass high up on the right the ruined tower called Blacko, standing close to the Yorkshire boundary. Apparently this has now been identified as the Malkin Tower, so closely associated with the witches of the Pendle district, though Ainsworth in his romance has chosen to blow up the tower with gunpowder. At the end of his first book, he speaks of a witch's sabbath at the ruined tower on Rimmington Moor. He does not there call it Malkin Tower, but Blacko is not far to the east of the moor. I do not find that the inhabitants of the district have any idea of the identification. Close to the stream at Rough Lee stands the striking building known as Rough Lee Hall, or the Witches' Hall, the reputed home of the Fallis Nutter, the attack on which is described by Ainsworth in his second book. It is a long, low, gabled house bearing the inscription M.N. 1536, the initials apparently being those of Miles Nutter, father-in-law of the famous Alice, the mistress Nutter of Ainsworth's story, who was actually hanged for witchcraft with nine others at Lancaster in 1612. Old Chattox was among the number, but old Demdike died before the trial came on. The long mullioned windows are a feature of the building, I counted nine lights in a window at the end of the house that is still inhabited. Several streams unite at Barley. Blackmoss water comes down from Furbar House close to the Yorkshire border, where the moor rises to over 1,000 feet, while the main stream descends almost from the summit of Pendle. If we follow the road over the shoulder of the hill towards Rimmington, we obtain lovely views across the surrounding country 
reaching out to the Ingleborough district, and from this road a rapid, if rather steep, ascent may be made to the cairn at a height of 1,830 feet. The better way to appreciate the build of Pendle, however, is to follow the clough between Spence Moor and Barley Moor, and then, climbing to the top of Spence Moor, sweep round the head of Ogden, and so rise to the summit. But the walking is rough. Let us not pretend to paint in words the velvet-like curtain of blended hues, dark green and emerald, amethyst and russet and purple and brown, and old gold, with which Pendle clothes so richly the steep sides of this beautiful clough, changing the scene continually as the seasons succeed one another. By this route we walk up the slope of the anticline, and so realise the construction of the massif of the hill for Pendle is on the sloping southern side of the Clitheroe anticline, the crown of the arch being now represented by the Ribble Valley, cut through the limestone far below us. Here in North Lancashire, as we have said already, the anticlines form the valleys, and the troughs or synclines form the high ground. We shall not have failed to notice as we have risen how the hamlets of Pendle Forest cluster round the foot of the hill, many of them marking the sites of ancient lawns or booths or vaccaries some even still so named none of them of any great size some of them are still many miles from a railway station isolated in rough hill country overshadowed by the mass and often by the mists of pendle the district teems with legend and romance and superstition and old-time story pendle forest swarms with witches says Nicholas Ashton in Ainsworth's novel. They burrow in the hillside like rabbits in a warren. It has been said that even if a census were taken merely of the horseshoes nailed over doors for good luck, Pendle Forest would score the highest number in the county. Another point to notice is the number of stone-built halls that encircle the hill. Pendleton, Merley, Worston, Legram, and so on. Finally, even the uninhabited part, we notice, is not wooded, for the term forest in olden times did not necessarily imply the presence of timber. One of Ainsworth's characters speaks of a witch's sabbath held on the summit of Pendle. A witch's sabbath was one of those unholy meetings, such as are pictured in Macbeth. In quite recent times, cockfighting and other revels are said to have been seen there. Nicholas Ashton professes to see from the summit york minster on the one hand and the irish coast on the other we may be content with the nearer view even though we range no further than did the eight watchers by the beacon whom ainsworth places at the north-eastern point of the hill at which we have by this time arrived one looked over the castled heights of clitheroe the woody eminences of bowland the bleak ridges of thornley the broad moors of bleasdale the trough of bowland and wolf crag and even brought within his ken the black fells overhanging Lancaster. The other tracked the stream called Pendle Water almost from its source and followed its windings through the leafless forest until it united its waters with those of the Calder, and swept on in swifter and clearer current to wash the base of Wally Abbey. But the watcher's survey did not end here. Noting the sharp spire of Burnley Church, was there a spire? relieved against the rounded mass of timber constituting Townley Park, as well as the entrance of the gloomy mountain gorge known as the Gorge of Cliviger, his far-reaching gaze passed over Todmorden and settled on the distant summit of Blackstone Edge. 
in another chapter we have given ruskin's impressions of the view from the summit of the old man of coniston more than two and a half centuries ago george fox stood on the summit of pendle and looked around on the wide landscape as we are doing but probably with other thoughts i was moved by the lord to go to the top of it he said which i did with much ado it was so very steep and high from the top of this hill the lord let me see in what places he had a great people to be gathered today we may see one feature which was not present in fox's time we may see the contrast between the country to the south sown as it is with factories and chimneys and the great towns which are the product at once of the industrial revolution and the vicinity of a great coal-field and the wide stretch of unsullied forest and moorland that reaches away to the north the side of pendle is seamed and gored with gullies some of which have been scored out by the bursts that have occurred and are looked for after long continued rain pendle's brasted cell was a saying quite common when the geological survey was being made and the geologists not only mentioned this fact in their memoir but offered an explanation of it the summit of the hill is composed of grit below which comes the shale all of these beds slope upwards from the south to end abruptly in the northern face of the mountain the rain that falls sinks through the porous grit but is checked by the impermeable shale and when the former is oversaturated up to the level of the upper outcrop of the shale the latter being soft breaks away and the imprisoned liquid bursts out carrying with it large quantities of soft shale and debris and furrowing the hillside far down towards the plain brastclough was pointed out to the members of the survey as a gully that had been gouged out by one of these eruptions in a single night in this case however the geologists were incredulous the bed of this gully is cut out of the solid limestone and the memoir suggests that even if the ribble itself were poured over the top of pendle it could not work that miracle it is this phenomenon that ainsworth has utilized for a graphic scene near the commencement of his novel and he must have heard descriptions that enabled him to picture it a beautiful geological section of pendle appears in the maps of the survey the section being taken roughly in the direction in which we have been walking showing the upward curve of the beds towards the crown of the arch that would be over the ribble valley and it is worth while when we are standing on many of the bridges that span the ribble and the hodder to note how in each case the upturned strata are shown in the bed of the river pendle has been the subject of prolonged study by eminent geologists and a number of memoirs upon it have been read before the geological society eventually the limestones that form such prominent buttresses on the northern side of the hill were christened pendleside limestone while the rocks that form the upper part of the arch classed hitherto with the yoredale shales were dignified with the name pendleside grit the whole range of beds is called the pendleside series because they can best be studied on the western slope of pendle along the sides of the gullies that run down in the neighbourhood of worston but similar beds have been traced in other countries the position of the series in the general scheme of rocks is between the upper carboniferous limestone and the millstone grit this is not the place to go more into detail in a manner so technical that perhaps geologists themselves are not yet perfectly unanimous upon it but the name yoredale shale has been largely laid aside for the new nomenclature and it is at any rate satisfactory to know 
that Pendle Forest, having made its name in connection with the black art, Pendle itself has distinguished itself in the domain of pure science. If now we descend the loose scree to the green platform that projects a little to the north of Worston, we shall realise how steep is the angle at which these upturned beds have been broken off. By far the pleasantest ascent of Pendle is to be made from this northwestern side. We may approach from Clitheroe by a pretty green path that passes beside the limestone quarry, and clambering over the green buttresses behind Worston, and breasting the steep face of the hill, regardless of the path that slopes to the right, we soon find ourselves on the summit, enjoying the view of Ingleborough and Penny Ghent on the northern horizon. Longridge, Beacon Hill, Parlick, Burnslack, Waddington, and the Forest of Bowland nearer at hand, and away to the right across the forests of Pendle and Trawden, the high ground of Bowlesworth, and the sweep of the Pennines beyond Blackstone Edge. Bilberry and Cottongrass are more in evidence on the summit of Pendle than Heath or Heather. Swifts and Martins, and two birds that may be ravens wheel above us, and the bleat of a snipe comes from below. I have seen my first swift of the year from the summit of Pendle. Similarly, I have seen Martins hawking around the top of Aranig in Wales. This time, we will choose to descend by the deep gully mentioned above. Two deep gashes have been cut into Pendle, the one on the southern side being Ogden Clough. That on the north runs far back into the hill at Pendle Nick. It is as though we had asked to have a geological section cut for us. I've scrambled down this gully in the spring sunshine, when the sphagnum hung in thick spongy curtains of bright emerald, and the rocks at the many little cascades were clothed with the varied green of the many mosses and liverworts that I wished I could name for the stream descends, as it were, over a flight of hundreds of steps, and it is fascinating as you follow it to read the story of the making of the hill in the succession of strata. No longer need we wonder where the men of the Ordnance Survey obtained the information that enabled them to draw their beautiful section. We emerge at last by a pretty wooded glade at Little Merely Hall, and follow the stream across the fields all the way to Clitheroe, whose picturesque castle, on its limestone hill, is silhouetted against the mass of Longridge, while Beacon Hill peeps over the gap between Kemple End and Parlick's pretty cone. End of chapter 13